scripture reading this morning is from John chapter 1, verses 29 through 34. If you're using a few Bible and a few in front of you, that's on page number 71 of the New Testament. Hear the word of our Lord. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of the God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he on behalf I said. After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me, and I did not recognize him, but in order that he might be manifest to Israel. I came baptizing in water, and John bore witness, saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. And I did not recognize him, but he sent me to baptize in water, said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have bore witness that this is the Son of God. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you pray with me as we begin? Father, the reality is that the reality that we recognize is that none of us holds our lives in our own hand. None of us holds our life in our own hand. Lord, we live in this false reality where we, we think that we can control everything that will happen in our lives. And that false reality always and inevitably comes crashing down. Lord, we do not know the plans that you have for each one of us. We, you are the one who has numbered the hairs on our head. You have written our days in your book when as yet there was not one. You have ordained them for us by your sovereignty. And according to your providence, you bring them about. And uh, Lord, I, I pray that none of us, not one of us in this room, would miss out on the joy and even the rapture of walking in sure confidence in you as the God who orders our steps and numbers our days. I pray for Joanna, Lord, that this darkness would not overwhelm her. God, that you would cut through it with the light of Christ and that you would... That you would show her your great love and compassion through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, you would show her your power to save, your might and your strength that overcomes sin that overcomes despair, that overcomes doubt, and even overcomes the grave. Lord, you are the God who will shepherd us through the valley of the shadow of death. And you've proven that in our Lord Jesus Christ, who died on our behalf and rose again to prove that he has gained the victory and he is able to bring his people safely through death to his kingdom on the other side. God, give Joanna this confidence. Give her this Hope, Lord, give her this realization in her own soul that you are the God who fights for those who wait for you. You are the one who works on behalf of those who put their hope and trust in you. And none who put their trust in the Lord will ever be put to shame. 
God, show her, Lord, that she has no reason to believe that she will be put to shame by putting her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you would comfort the family, that you would give them great grace or to look beyond the now and minister to Joanna in light of what is coming. We also ask, Lord, that you would heal her, that you would manifest the greatness of your power in removing this cancer and astonishing the medical community with its prideful assessments and its vain uh, exaltation of human reason and thinking that is the answer to every problem that we have. Lord, that is not the answer. We do not have the answer to our problems. You are the only answer to our greatest problem, which is sin and death. We cannot keep ourselves alive. Lord, only you are the one who raises up and brings down. Only you are the one who makes alive and brings down to Sheol. None can deliver out of your hand. And so, Lord, we acknowledge that, and we lift Joanna up to you as the God who holds her life in your hand. We pray that you would do with her as you will, Lord, and that it's our desire that you would heal her. Glorify your name in this situation, Lord. Bring great good out of this manifestation of the evil and darkness that we live in. Lord, as we turn to your word, we're considering the answer to all of our problems and the, the source, the essence of what gives us any hope of living life in this fallen world. And that is beholding your beloved Son, as our God-ordained Lamb, our Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. God, would you give us grace to see that this morning? Give us grace to behold Him and to love, to love Him, Father, to cling to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and to receive the blessing of salvation in His name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're picking up in John chapter 1 where we left off last week. And uh, last week was a little awkward for me in going back and forth and putting the glasses on and off and this and that, but I really liked having my entire sermon written on one page in front of me. And so uh, we're just going to keep rolling with that until it doesn't work anymore, and then we'll switch it up and See what will serve us better. Well, we're coming to verse 29 this morning, really verses 29 through 34. And this section introduces us to the second day of this week that John is communicating to us from John chapter 1, verse 19, down through chapter 2, verse 11. So day one of that week has passed. We're now on day two. And this is the day the ordained day when God's Christ was revealed to the people. Last week we were looking at what took place on that first day, which was the testimony of John. When Jews sent 
priests and Levites to John to examine him and to ask and find out what he had to say about himself and why he was baptizing. John answered them in their, to their question, who are you? Are you the Christ? Are you, the Eli- are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? And John answered and said, no, I'm not. I am only a voice, a voice that is heralding the arrival of another. And what's fascinating about John's role in the revelation or the manifestation of the Messiah, the revealing of Jesus to this, as Savior to the people, what's fascinating about that is that Isaiah 40, chapter 40, verse 3, says that he was coming, John the Baptist would come to make the way of Yahweh clear. As to, to smooth a des- in the desert a highway for our God. So here John comes laboring in order to be a herald for someone who's coming after him. And the prophet Isaiah has already told us that the one coming after him is going to be no one less than Yahweh himself. And so in John saying that he is merely a voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, prepare the way of Yahweh, he's simply telling the people, I am preparing the way of God who is coming into your midst. And you need to make yourselves ready for that. And that gets to his answer for why he was baptizing. Why was he baptizing? Yes, this was the means of preparing the way of the Lord, but this was also the means that God ordained to prepare the people to receive him. This baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. You know, when the Lord comes in grace to anyone, He does not come to those who are unrepentant of their sin. The grace of God in bringing full salvation to a person comes about with the blessing of repentance. And so you cannot claim salvation in the Lord in meeting God in grace if there's no manifestation of heartfelt repentance turning away from sin in your life. John the Baptist came to prepare the way of the Lord by preaching about repentance. And those who heard his message were prepared to meet the Lord when he came. Really, the essence of of John's ministry is captured well in Isaiah 40, verses uh, 4 through 5, where really what he was laboring to do was to see every valley lifted up and every mountain and hill made low so that the glory of the Lord would be revealed and all flesh would be able to see it together. That was John's job. Knock down those mountains of pride where man has exalted himself Raise up those valleys of despair where man has fallen into sin. Bring them all on a level plane so that they can all see the glory of the Lord when it was revealed. That's what John the Baptist came doing. That is the heart of John's ministry. He was preparing the people to see the glory of the Lord when he was revealed. Now the surprising part of the passage that we're looking at today, and this is shocking, is that when the glory of the Lord was revealed before the people, it was revealed in this specific way. Yahweh came among them as a lamb. Yahweh came among his people as a lamb. So when John declares in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's not only saying, here is that one that I was preparing the way for. Here is Yahweh. Here is God. But he's also declaring that God has come among them as a lamb. 
Why is that so shocking? We're going to look at that today. We're going to look at that really under two headings. One is the arrival of the Lamb, or the arrival of Yahweh as the Lamb. And then the second heading is the glory of the Lamb. How is the glory of the Lamb, Yahweh as a Lamb, revealed in this verse? So that first one, first point, the arrival of the Lamb. You see this in verse 29, that the day had arrived for John's ministry to testify to the coming of Yahweh among them. John's ministry had reached the point when it would be fulfilled. It says on the next day, that is the day after the priests and Levites had come to him, John saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, remember that for days and for months, John had been declaring to the people, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, get ready, get ready, get ready. Now, all of a sudden, there's a note change. There's an alteration in this progression of message here. There's something that has radically shifted where John is no longer saying, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, get ready, get ready, get ready. He is now saying, behold, he is here. The coming one has already arrived. And as the people were hearing John say, Behold, he is here. When they turned their eyes to see the one whom he was pointing at and declaring, There he is, the one I've been preaching about has finally arrived. Who is he pointing at? They discovered none other than Jesus of Nazareth, this man coming to them. Now, let me say just a word about the time frame here. You compare what's recounted here in the Gospel of John with the other synoptic Gospels. Where does this fit in to the order of events as we read them in the other Gospels, in relation to those Gospels? Well, this day 2, verse 29 of John chapter 1, it must have taken place after Jesus' baptism. Because John says in verses 31 and 33 that until Jesus was baptized, he did not know who the Messiah was. He knew that the Messiah was coming, but he himself did not recognize who that person would be. So in verse 31, it says that this was the main reason why John came baptizing, was so that the one who was coming after John would be revealed or manifested to Israel. And in verse 33, John explains, he says, I myself did not recognize him, but when the Lord who called me to baptize told me uh, to go baptize, he also revealed to me how I would recognize when the Messiah came. John says in verse 33, The Lord said to me, When he comes, he who sent me to baptize said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Then verse 32, John says that he saw this happen when Jesus was baptized. That's how he knew that Jesus was the Messiah. Now we learn from Mark chapter 1, verse 12, that immediately after Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit drove Jesus out into the wilderness in order to be tested by the devil. It says here that he, the Spirit impelled, actually, that's, I changed it. The New American Standard says he impelled Jesus to go out into the wilderness. Really, the sense behind that is he drove him out into the wilderness. And really what you have here, if you just, as a parenthesis, you, you have this reversal of a picture of what happened with Job. You remember with Job, you have the devil approaching God and asking for permission to do something to Job. Well, here you have the Spirit of God taking Jesus and driving him out into this confrontation with the devil. 
not at the instigation of the devil, but because, because of the will of the Lord. Where it's finally, it's the Lord saying, here is, my, here is my ultimate righteous servant. Do your best. Let's see what you got. Now, John 1.29 takes place after this 40-day period of the Messiah being tested. And here you have this conquering and victorious Christ returning to the people of Israel. Returning from the wilderness in order to be announced as the long-awaited Messiah to the nation. And so when John sees Jesus returning to him, he declares to all the people, Behold, here is the promised one. He has arrived. Now, in light of that, notice how John describes him. As he beholds this victorious Messiah coming his way, he does not declare to the people, Behold, here is the Christ. He does not declare to the people, Behold, here is Yahweh. People, behold your God. He does not declare to the people, Behold, here is the prophet. He says to them, Behold, here is the Lamb. Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, we are so accustomed to thinking in terms of the full revelation of the New Testament that it doesn't really surprise us when we hear Jesus designated as a lamb. Did anyone feel shocked or even offended when the passage was read earlier and we read about Jesus being called the Lamb of God? No. No, it's because we're used to hearing about him, used to hearing him described that way. But to the first century Jew, this would have been shocking. This would have been absolutely shocking. Not only to have a man described as a lamb who takes away sin, but also to have the one who is being claimed to be the Messiah described as a lamb who will take away sin. See, John has been preaching to the people that the Messiah is coming. And in the minds of the people, the Messiah was described, even John describes him as, one who held an axe in his hand. One who came with an axe already set at the root of every tree. And every tree that does not bear good fruit, he's going to whack that tree down and throw it into the fire. In other words, the Messiah has been described as the one who is coming to deal out the vengeance of God upon an ungodly and disobedient people. He's coming to gather his people into the barn and he's coming to burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This doesn't fit the depiction of a lamb. The Messiah was always thought of as, as being this mighty, conquering king, this one riding forth on a steed, victorious, decimating the enemies of Israel, blessing those that blessed Israel and cursing those that cursed Israel. That was the picture of the Messiah. And when Jesus came on the scene, the Jews at that time believed that the Messiah was coming ultimately to give them salvation, yes, but not salvation from things like sin, not salvation from things like unrighteousness or disobedience to the Lord, but salvation from the Romans, salvation from political tyranny, salvation from oppression of government. That was the Messiah that they were expecting, this Psalm 45 Messiah riding forth with his sword girded upon his, his thigh and ready to wage war for the sake of God. 
What a seeming contradiction then to hear John declare that the Messiah was a lamb. Lambs are not mighty. Lambs do not conquer. Lambs are not exalted in strength and glory. And if you have any doubt about that, you can ask someone who's here in our congregation, Cruz, who's actually, what, what do you officially call yourself, brother? What's that? Sheep You're a sheep, a sheep farmer. That's what he is. <laughs> so he actually deals with sheep all day long. If you have any doubt about whether or not a, a lamb, which is a one-year-old sheep, a sheep who is one year old or less, if you have any doubt about whether a lamb is, is mighty and powerful or glorious in strength, you can go talk to him and he will affirm they are not. Lambs are not mighty, they're not, they don't conquer, they're not exalted in strength or glory. And yet, John declares, here is the mighty, conquering Lord of glory, behold the Lamb. And not just any Lamb, he says that this is the Lamb who takes away sin. Now the Jews fully expected the Messiah to deal with sin when he came. You know how they expected him to deal with sin? With wrath and judgment with sword drawn, decimating the ungodly. But there's only one way that a lamb deals with sin. And it's not by destroying the enemies, its enemies who have sinned against that lamb. There's only one way for a lamb to deal with sin, and that is by bearing sin. This is the lesson that the Jews had learned from the law over and over again. Thinking through the law, throughout the entire law, there's really only one thing that the law says a lamb can do with sin, and that is bear it. A lamb can bear sin. And in bearing sin, a lamb can make atonement for sin. That is, a lamb can bring satisfaction for the sin that has been committed. And you see this in various different offerings that the Israelites were called to offer. Some of them were, uh, had the possibility of including sheep. For example, the burnt offering in Leviticus chapter 1. If you didn't bring a bull in order to offer as a burnt offering, you could bring a sheep to offer. Pretty general, just a sheep. There were certain offerings, though, that required that the worshiper bring a lamb if they were going to bring a sheep. Again, a lamb is a sheep that is one year old or less. And so in Leviticus chapter 3, verse 6 through 7, we find that if you were going to bring a peace offering unto the Lord, either to celebrate peace or to establish peace with Yahweh, you were to bring a one-year-old lamb. Leviticus chapter 4, verse 32, if you were making a sin offering unto the Lord to make restitution for your sin, for breaking His commandments, if you were going to bring a sheep, it had to be a lamb. Leviticus chapter 5, verse 6, it says that a lamb could also be used as a guilt offering. In fact, every morning in Israel, according to Numbers chapter 28, verses 3 through 4, the Israelites were supposed to offer up two male lambs every day, one in the morning and one at night, and they were to offer it at the presence of the tent of meeting. And that was to ensure their acceptance in the presence of God as a nation, as a people. You can also add to the list the Passover lamb, right? 
When that final plague came upon Egypt, there was, a, there was one means that the Lord provided for the people of Israel, whereby their firstborn would not be subject to the wrath of God that was going to sweep through the land of Egypt. And that was if they sacrificed and ate and painted the blood over their doorpost of a Passover lamb. Then in Exodus 12, 23, it tells us what that was for. It was when the Lord would see the blood on that door frame he would pass over that household and not bring judgment upon it. And so the Old Testament is clear that lambs were given by God and intended by God in order to deal with sin, in order to bear sin. And their work, according to the law, was always viewed in, re in relation to sin, specifically in regard to bringing salvation from sin or to bringing atonement for sin, or bringing deliverance from judgment, or redemption, or securing acceptance with God. And here's the important key. The only way that a lamb could do that was by bearing sin and offering its life in place of the worshiper. You guys still with me? This is a lot. I know. But i got to run through this if we're going to get to the meat of this section of John chapter 1. The only way that a lamb could actually deal with sin was at the expense of the lamb's own life. This is called substitutionary atonement. It was what the Lord introduced his people to through the Mosaic law. That one offer, or a, a, a sinner who would come into the presence of the Lord and worship him and find acceptance before God would have to bring a substitute who would bear that, that worshiper's sin so that the worshiper could be accepted. They would bring, for example, this lamb, and they would offer it up in place of their own guilty selves in order to be accepted before the Lord. And really what this was picturing was the demands of God's law and how the demands of God's law could be satisfied in such a way that it spared the sinner and welcomed the sinner into God's presence only by means of a substitutionary sacrifice, a substitutionary atonement, bearing the penalty of sin in itself so that the guilty party could go free. Now, what is amazing in John chapter 1, verse 29, is that John looks at the Jews as the Messiah is coming and says that in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, everything pictured by these lambs under the law is now being fulfilled. Now that is not what the Jews were prepared to behold when their Messiah came. That was not the kind of Messiah that the Jews were ready to see when he came. They expected him to deal with sin, but not as a lamb. They expected him to deal with sin as a conquering king dealing out vengeance on the sinful nations, executing sinners with the vengeance of God. And as we're going to see in this gospel, not only is this not what they expected, but this is also not what the majority of the people in, in Israel wanted. Because they did not sense their need for a Savior to save them from sin. Well, this is what the ministry of John the Baptist was all about. It was preparing the people to receive the Lord when he came by preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
Really, Matthew Henry had an excellent quote on this. You can follow along with me on the screen. When he began to describe that the nature of John's ministry and what he was really doing, he said, John the Baptist had called the people to repent of their sins in order to the remission of them, that is, in order to be forgiven of them. Now here he shows how and by whom that remission was to be expected. What ground of hope we have that our sins shall be pardoned upon our repentance, though our repentance makes no satisfaction for them. This ground and hope we have, he says, Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. That is our hope. In other words, when John the Baptist came preaching a repentance for the forgiveness of sins, forgiveness of sins was not granted merely because they turned away from their sin. Forgiveness of sin has to be grounded and rooted upon something that is worthy enough to permit the guilty sinner to be forgiven. If God simply passed over sin and shuffled your sin under a rug and decided He's not going to deal with you as a sinner, He would no longer be just and therefore He would no longer be God. Sin must be dealt with or else it compromises the holy and righteous character of God. It is an abomination in the presence of God to justify the wicked. It is an abomination in His sight to declare the wicked innocent and free from guilt when in fact they are not innocent and not free from guilt. That is a bold-faced lie. And if God did that, He would no longer be a God worthy of our worship. As Matthew Henry says here, John's ministry was preparing the people for the reality that yes, forgiveness of sin is promised, but not, not just blanketly applied to anyone and everyone. Forgiveness of sin is promised because it is built upon something that is worthy enough to acquire that forgiveness for the sinner. It is built upon the foundation of the Lamb of God, the Son of God who became a man to stand in our place. Only upon that condition does any sinner find forgiveness. Now, just an application as we move from that point. You will never behold the glory of Jesus until you behold Him as a Lamb. You will never behold the glory of Jesus until you behold Him as a Lamb who is coming not to deal with you as a sinner, but to deal with your sin so that He can deal with you as a child. See, that is where, this, this is where you behold Jesus in the fullness of His grace and truth. This is where you behold Him in His compassion and in His mercy. In fact, this is where you behold the very reason why you have any confidence at all to trust in the love and forgiveness and compassion and grace of God. Only because He gave His Son to stand in your place. It is only in beholding Jesus Christ as a lamb, a substitutionary sacrifice given by God for you that you will behold the glory of the love of God and the glory of the compassion of God that has been revealed in Jesus. Our confidence in any of these truths, any grace or hope of forgiveness with God is secured 
And our assurance flows from the glory of Jesus coming as our Lamb. Now I want to talk about three ways that John presents the glory of this Lamb to us. If I've lost you already in this morning, this morning's message, just that, that's fine. Just come back with us now. Shake your head around. We're going to be just a little while longer. We're going, then we're going to come celebrate at the, at the Lord's table in light of what Jesus Christ our Lamb has done for us. John describes the glory of Jesus as the Lamb in three ways. And I want to bring it out to you, bring it out for you. Three ways in John 1.29 that he mentions, presents the glory of the Lamb. First of all, the glory of the Lamb, Jesus, is seen by the fact that he is God's Lamb. He is God's Lamb. Now, to be God's lamb, you see that there when John says in John 1.29, John the Baptist is saying, behold, the lamb of God, that is the lamb that belongs to God or the lamb that God has given. Now, by necessity, what that means is if Jesus is the lamb given by God, then he is not a lamb given by men. He was not chosen by men in order to be offered up to God. He was chosen by God in order to be offered up on behalf of men. And that has some very strong implications for you and me. We cannot hold hope in Jesus Christ as our Lamb, whose blood secures forgiveness of our sins, simply because we choose to use Jesus and present Him to God. There's no hope of forgiveness with God simply because we have found someone we think is worthy. This is going to be our way to heaven, and we're going to present this way to God. Maybe others have a different way, but this is our way. And we think that it's going to be good enough. That's not how this works. That's not how this works. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God, meaning Jesus Christ is the Lamb who has been provided by God. He is the Lamb who secures forgiveness for sinners with God. And if you will not come to God through this Lamb, you will not come to God and find forgiveness. This is His appointed way of forgiving you of your sin. And if you come to God outside of those means, outside of the means of the blood of the Lamb Jesus Christ shed for you, you will not find forgiveness with God. You will not find His compassion or love. You will find what you deserve, which is His justice. Jesus is God's lamb, meaning it is God's appointed lamb, appointed for you and me. Now, the language here is pretty specific, and it's pointing, I believe, to one key passage in the Old Testament. When it describes Jesus as the lamb of God, I believe that we should be hearing in that echoes from Genesis chapter 22. You guys may remember the scene of Genesis 22, what's happening there. This is where the Lord calls Abraham to come offer up Isaac as a sacrifice. In verse 6, they arrived where they were supposed to go, and they grabbed all the supplies for the sacrifice, and it says there very specifically, they walked on together. Now, once they got to this place, verse 7, Isaac, looking around at the, at the wood and the fire, puts two and two together and says, Okay, Father... If we're coming to worship God with sacrifice, I, I see the fire and I see the wood, but where's, where's the lamb? Where's the actual animal that we're going to offer up 
in worship to the Lord. Abraham gives this key response in verse 8, where he looks back at his son and he says, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb. God will provide for himself the lamb. Now, we know the story. Abraham tied up Isaac. Isaac laid him down upon the wood and went to strike down Isaac as a sacrifice. And right as he's doing that, the Lord stops him. He says, Abraham, stop. Do not harm the child. Now I know that you fear the Lord because you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Ooh, echoes of monogamous there, guys. Did you hear that? Those of you who are here for those messages, those of you who suffered through those messages on monogamous, You should hear that echo right there in Genesis 22. You have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Right? And what does the Lord provide in place of Isaac as a substitute for the sacrifice of Isaac? You would expect to find a lamb because Abraham said God will provide for himself a lamb. But we don't actually find a lamb. What Abraham finds is a ram in verse 13 that was caught in the thicket. And they offered up that lamb. Now for centuries, Abraham's descendants waited for the fulfillment of that word spoken by Abraham. This story is written in such a way that you're supposed to come away after reading Genesis 22 wondering, wait, where's the lamb? Abraham said the Lord would provide for himself a lamb. God didn't give him a lamb, he gave him a ram. Those are two different animals. You're supposed to feel something of a contradiction there. And what we find throughout the rest of the Old Testament is the Lord preparing his people to receive the lamb that he was going to provide for himself, preparing his people for that lamb through different types and different shadows that were revealed in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Why did the Lord choose the lamb in some of these sacrifices? Well, it was because it was pointing to that lamb that he was going to provide for himself in fulfilling the word of Abraham. All foreshadowing the lamb that he would provide in place of others. John the Baptist makes clear when Jesus came on the scene that God's lamb had finally arrived. And this is the glory of the gospel. That because the Lamb of God has finally arrived, because that word of Abraham has finally been fulfilled, and God has provided for Himself the Lamb, you and I are not waiting around for God to accept any of the lambs that you and I could offer. We're not trying to figure out what can we do in order to gain acceptance with God. We're not trying to figure out the way to find forgiveness with God. There has been one way revealed, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the glory of the gospel. And when your soul gets the fact that there's only one way to come to the Father, and that is through Jesus Christ, you feel the freedom and you feel the liberty to come and worship with God in peace and holiness without fear of judgment and without fear of His wrath because you know you are secure in the way that He has ordained for you to come to Him. There should be some amens there. This is the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we are not trying to labor to find some acceptable lamb that God will receive from our hands. He's already given that lamb. The only question that remains is whether or not you and I are going to lay our hands upon the lamb that God has chosen. See, it's not a question of you trying to find some way to gain forgiveness with God from the sins you've committed. We've all committed sins, 
Raise your hand if you haven't and we'll cast you out of here. We are all sinners. We have all rebelled against the Lord. We have all committed things, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, that we don't want anyone else in this room to know about. The glory of the gospel is that we don't have to hide those things from the Lord anymore. We don't have to try to hide those things with our fig leaves like Adam and Eve did. The Lamb has come to deal with those things. All we have to do is believe in God enough to come lay our hands upon the head of this Lamb and accept the sacrifice that God has made in our behalf. So the question is not, do we, can we find a lamb? Can we find some way to find forgiveness with God? That's not the question. That question's already been answered. Here is the way. It's the lamb of God, Jesus Christ. The question that remains for us is whether or not we'll lay our hands upon that lamb and own him as our savior. The second way that John reveals the glory of this lamb is by describing this lamb as the final lamb. He is the final lamb. You see that in John 1.29 when he describes him as the lamb who takes away sin. And really what we're focusing on there is the fact that when this lamb was offered, he took away sin. In other words, Jesus is the lamb that actually accomplishes what all the other lambs promised but could not actually deliver. See, all the Old Testament lambs promised cleansing from sin. All the Old Testament lambs promised atonement. They promised redemption. They promised forgiveness. But not a single one of them could secure it for the worshiper. They promised these things, but they could not deliver these things. You see this, for example, explained in Hebrews chapter 10. If you want to find the fullest explanation of this, just go read Hebrews chapter 8 through chapter 10. But in chapter 10, verse 1, it opens up saying that the law was nothing more than a shadow of the good things that were to come. And because it was nothing more than a shadow, the sacrifices that were offered according to the law could not bring about the substance of those good things which it foreshadowed. Does that make sense? I know I can get really confusing in the way that I word things. I can for me, maybe not for you. They only had a shadow within themselves of good things that were to come. Otherwise, as verse 2 says, if it wasn't merely a shadow, if they actually had the substance of forgiveness, if they actually carried the substance of what they promised, then would not have those sacrifices ceased to be offered? Would they not have made the conscience of the worshiper clean, clean from sin? That's part of the argument. And verses 3 through 4 says, far, far from taking sin away, these sacrifices that were offered over and over again did nothing more than serve as a reminder that the worshiper was sinful and still in need of some way to be cleansed from his or her sin. But Jesus, Hebrews 10 goes on to say, as the Lamb of God has accomplished what none of these sacrifices could. Verses 11 through 14 we read about the priest standing daily and offering sacrifices that cannot take away sin. And yet, verse 12, Jesus offered one sacrifice for sin for all time. And how do we know that that sacrifice was worthy? How do we know that that sacrifice was acceptable and able to actually cleanse people from their sins in the presence of God? Well, the fact that Jesus, when he was done doing this work, unlike those priests who were offering multiple sacrifices, Jesus sat down when his work was done. 
After he made purification of sins, it says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, proving and demonstrating that the work he had to do, the work he came to do, to cleanse his people from their sins had been accomplished, that it was done. He sat down. And there he's waiting for the full reward of his sufferings to be received, not only in subjugating every single one of his enemies, but also in bringing all of his people into the fullness of the perfected state that he has achieved for them. That's what Jesus is waiting on. See, in John 1.29, Jesus actually takes away sin. He doesn't just cover it up. He doesn't just offer a promise of forgiveness but can't deliver on that promise. Jesus has made all that is necessary happen in order to usher that promise to us. Now, you got to get this. This is not some theoretical, theoretical issue that we are considering here. I was talking with someone a couple of weeks ago about the gospel of Christ and about the need for repentance and the judgment that's coming. And this person looked at me and said, look, what you're talking about, that's, that's not for today. Yes, judgment's coming, but that's for that day. And we're not at that day right now. We're here in this day, and I'm going to enjoy this day, and I'm going to do what I want to do in this day, and I will worry about that day when it happens. Yeah, wow, is right, right? But that's a heart that does not have the fear of the Lord. That is a heart that is not being taught by the Spirit of God to come to Christ, to know the truth, to flee for refuge to the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you're a believer in this room, your reaction to the day of judgment, to the reality of sin, the issue that you have to be cleansed from your sin if you're going to stand in the presence of God, your reaction to that is night and day different. Because you know what it means for Jesus to take away your sin. Let me flesh that out a little bit. Three things you need to keep in mind when you're trying to remember, what does it mean for Jesus to take away sin? Well, first of all, it means that he has taken away the penalty of sin. The wages of sin is death. God promised Adam and Eve, the moment that, Adam, the moment that you eat of this tree that I told you not to eat of, you're going to die. And they did die spiritually. They were cast out from the presence of God as a result of their sin. Jesus has come to take the full brunt of the penalty of sin. He died. He really did die on a cross. He entered into the depths of the wages of sin. And he rose again victorious over it. He delivers all of his people who trust in him from the penalty of sin. But let me go further than that. If you are someone whom Jesus is delivering from the penalty of sin, let me make you aware of the fact that he will also, right now in time, be delivering you from the power of sin. If Jesus truly is delivering you from the penalty of sin that God's law demands, then he will right now in this time be delivering you from the power of sin. The power of sin will no longer have hold on you because you will be lashed to God through the Lord Jesus Christ by the cords of grace. 
Grace will reign in your heart. The love of God will set you free from the power of sin. You will no longer be constrained to those sinful and God-degrading lusts that are evident in your heart, that are present there. Jesus will be delivering you from the power of that sin. It does not mean you will not feel tempted. It does not mean you will not feel tempted. It does not mean you will not stumble as a Christian. But what it does mean is that when temptation comes upon you, you have all the power you need in the Lord Jesus Christ to resist it and to stand firm and to resist it to the point of shedding your blood. Now, if you never have victory over sin like that, my friend, you need to be asking yourself whether or not the power of the Holy Spirit is truly in you. If you are not being delivered from your sin, you need to make sure that you're questioning very hard whether you have been delivered from the penalty of sin. The third thing. So you've got penalty, you've got power, and this goes with the power, you've got presence. The presence of sin. If you're a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have actually laid your hands in faith upon this lamb and you are receiving the benefits that that lamb has secured for you, you will not only be delivered from the penalty and the power of sin, you will be delivered from the presence of sin. One day that's going to be absolutely, that's going to be an absolute deliverance from all the presence of sin. That's going to be in glory. But until that point, you are going to be walking through a process called sanctification. You are going to be made one step after another more and more holy unto the Lord. One degree of glory to another. That's the Christian life. And if the Spirit of God and the truth about Jesus is not working in your heart such that you want sin less and less and you want God more and more, then my friend, you are not a Christian. And you need to repent of your sin and you need to flee to the Lord Jesus Christ so that he would deliver you from your sin. There's three ways that Jesus delivers us from sin. The penalty, the power, and the presence. Now, the good news just on this point, guys, no other lamb can be given to deliver you from sin like that, but the good news is that no other lamb needs to be given in order to deliver you from your sin. The lamb's already been given. All you need to do is come receive what that lamb has done. Third point where we see the glory of the lamb. He's not only God's lamb, he's not only the final lamb, but he is also the universal lamb. Now, if all of what I've said so far and all that John was communicating was not shocking enough for the Jews to hear, this last one would have pushed them over the edge of comprehension. This lamb was given by God not merely to take away the sins of Israel, but he came as a lamb in order to redeem the world. Now, we're, who's Jewish in here? Who was raised in a Jewish context, a Jewish home, believing that you were the only chosen people of God in the entire world? Anybody? No. So this is really good news for you and me then. That's good news for the Jew too. But this is really good news for us. That this lamb was not merely given to redeem Israel. This lamb was given in order to purchase sinners out of darkness 
from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Revelation 5, 9, and 10. I wrote this down, and I wasn't sure whether I was going to say it, but I'll say it. I think it's good. I think it's right to say that as wide as is the illuminating work of Christ's common grace extends, as wide as that illuminating work of common grace extends, that is how wide the declaration of Christ's saving grace is to go. As wide as the work of common grace extends, that is as wide as the proclamation of saving grace ought to go. No one is to be excluded from the good news of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not a single person. Yeah, amen. Remember the promise that God gave for the Savior in Genesis 3.15? That was given to man collectively. It was not given to one particular man. Well, it was, but in him, it was all humanity. Adam was the head of the whole human race when he received that promise. And that means that that promise of a Savior in Genesis 3.15 belongs to the entire human race. D.A. Carson put it well. He said that the Lamb came to save the world, not all without exception, but all without distinction. He did not come to save the world without exception. There are exceptions to this promise of salvation, and the main exception is whether or not you will receive it. Whether or not you are among God's chosen, redeemed, elect people who will receive the fullness of inheritance in Christ Jesus. That's one exception. But that exception does not, does not negate the fact that the gospel is to go out to all people without distinction. This is the glory of the Lord concerning his servant revealed in Isaiah 49 through 5 and 6. He says, it's too light a thing for you to redeem the lost tribes of Israel. I will set you as a light to the nations. He says there, so that you will make my salvation reach to the ends of the earth. The glory of the Lamb is that he is the universal Lamb. The only means of salvation for the entire world. Now, a point of application on that. I'll try to be brief, and then we'll close. In light of the fact that Jesus is the universal Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, there's not a single person in this room that has the right to believe that the saving work of Christ is not for you. There's not a single person in this room that has the right to believe that the saving work of Christ is not for you. The Lamb takes away the sin of all who will receive Him. I like how Herman Bavinck worded this in his Reformed Dogmatics in Volume 2, I believe, yeah, page 402. He says, now this is concerning election. No one has a right to believe that he or she is not among the elect. Or he puts the word reprobate. For everyone is sincerely and urgently called to believe in Christ with a view to salvation. He goes on to say, one's own life and all that makes it enjoyable is proof that God takes no delight in his death. You understand what he's saying there? 
If God gives you life and breath and all things and all things to enjoy, you have no right to believe that God is not willing to save you. And that's just from a natural perspective. That's just from looking at your life and saying, God has given me food for the day. God has given me breath for the day. God gives me a shelter and clothing. Of course He doesn't delight in my death or else I would have long been dead by now. How much more so can we say that in relation to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? God so loved the world that He gave His Son. And when we get to that passage, I'm going to explain why I believe that that love truly is for the entire world. You have no right to believe that the saving work of Christ is not for you. And therefore, you need to come in faith and receive it. Now in closing, what are we called to do in response to this reality of Jesus being the Lamb of God, the final Lamb, and the universal Lamb? I believe that that's contained in one simple phrase at at the beginning of John's words where it says, when he saw Jesus coming to him, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. This is the heart of John the Baptist's ministry, that the Lamb is here, and now the call is for sinners to behold him. He's been manifested, he's been revealed, he's been made known, and now God himself calls us to behold him for ourselves and to believe upon him. So John 6.40 where it says that the will of God is that we would behold his son and believe. Now in this, beholding is not merely knowing that Jesus is the lamb. To behold Jesus as the Lamb is not merely having a mental understanding that Jesus is God's Lamb. To behold the Lamb means that we come with the eyes of faith and we see Jesus as God's Lamb given for us. And in response to that reality, we consciously and willfully and wholeheartedly take hold of the salvation God has given us in Him. That's what it means to behold the Lamb. It means receive Him. Apart from doing this, you will not be saved. I appreciated the words from Kent Hughes in his commentary on this passage. And you guys will probably resonate with this, and you'll ask, man, why did he spend an hour explaining to us this passage? Kent Hughes opens up saying, most of us understand what John is saying. And that's true. Most of us understood what John 1.29 was talking about before I even started speaking up here. However... Kent says, our salvation does not depend on our formulation of the doctrine of atonement, but on our experience of it. Read that again. Most of us understand what John is saying. However, our salvation does not depend on our formulation of the doctrine of the atonement. It depends upon our experience of it. There is no Christianity in anyone's life that is genuine that is not at the same time experienced. If your Christianity is nothing more than a profession that you claim to believe in but has no impact on your life, then you are not a believer. The atonement that's given through our Lord Jesus Christ is an atonement that must be experienced with all of its cleansing, 
life-giving, reconciling effects. So I pray that if that is you, and you have experienced the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, may you rejoice in Him. And as we come to the table, may you in fresh faith take hold of the elements and worship Him as the Lamb of God who has taken away your sin. If you don't know by experience the glory of the atonement, then my friend, you need to flee to the Lord Jesus Christ until you do. You need to come lay your hands upon Jesus and own Him as your God-appointed Lamb. Would you pray with me? Father, we do thank You for Your Word and we thank You for the glory of it. And I pray that You would use whatever was said here today to be a help and an encouragement to Your people. Lord, we trust in your spirit to work miracles and do wonders and perform the impossible. So would you perform the impossible in our own hearts this morning and help us as we come to your table to worship in Jesus' name. Amen.